do appreciate everybody being here this morning. I'll invite you to turn to 1 Chronicles, the book of 1 Chronicles this morning. You know, the Bible is a, a great book, very interesting book. You know, we devote our lifetime to studying the Bible, and uh, we think to great profit, to great benefit. It's a collection of stories, of course, but it's really one story all the way through. It's the story of the way uh, God has redeemed us. Brother West talked about that in his comments, preparing our minds for the Lord's Supper, that God has redeemed us and reconciled us. It tells us what has gone wrong, that we've sinned and we've uh, transgressed the law of God, and that has affected our fellowship with God. But ever since that first occasion of sin, God has put into motion a plan to redeem us, to bring us back into fellowship with Himself. He works through the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, or the nation of Israel, and eventually the Christ, the Savior, the one who atones for our sin, will will come, will, will be a descendant of Abraham. But it takes a long time to prepare them, to prepare the Jews for the coming Messiah. At the right time, Galatians 4 tells us, God brought His Son into the world. Through that time, we read about God working with Israel, sending His prophets to Israel, uh, developing that nation, bringing them to that point when it's the right time. And as God works with them and works with Israel, uh, we learn lots of valuable lessons about our relationship with God as well. We learn what pleases Him, what doesn't please Him. And so we go to an Old Testament passage like the one we're going to look at this morning, And even though it's just one part, one phase, one sort of brief installment in God's overall plan to bring people back into fellowship with Himself, still I think there's powerful lesson to be learned. And so we look at 1 Chronicles chapter 12 this morning. Don't know that we preach a lot of times from the books of Chronicles, but as I said a moment ago, lots of good, a lot of powerful information in, in this passage. It has to do with an event in the life of David. David was a great king of Israel, the second king of Israel, ruled over the 12 tribes, over the United Kingdom. He was really the greatest king in the history of Israel. It's sort of the the gold standard uh, for kings of Israel. And so in years to come, if people did well, uh, they followed in the way of David. You know, it's uh, the standard that is applied to them. He accomplished great things for the people. As I said a moment ago, he reigned over the United Kingdom. And so after the death of the first king, Saul, he brings the kingdom together and unites the kingdom under his rule. He established Jerusalem as the nation's capital. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to the holy city, into Jerusalem. He made preparations for Solomon, his son, to build the temple. He expanded the kingdom and defeated the enemies that threatened the kingdom. First Chronicles 18 verse 13 says, The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all the people. And so God was with David. He was a man after God's own heart, of course, faithful to God, never turned to idols, and never became unfaithful to God in that way. Not a perfect man, obviously. But always, God was always his God. And God blessed him, and as it says here, he gave him the victory wherever he went. But it's important to note that David didn't do this alone, that he was the king, 
And yet he was helped in that, in that role by lots of different people. In 1 Kings 18 and verse 13, we read about some of them. And so it says, uh, He put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became servants to David. The Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, administered justice and righteousness for all the people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, was, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Shavshah was secretary. And so we can read some of the people that, that helped David. Joab was the great leader of the army. Zadok was the priest. And so David doesn't do his work alone. He has others there to help him. Very importantly, he has the loyalty of the army. And so the army is behind David. They're loyal to David. They fight with David. And we can read about some of the names of these men who, in, in the army who helped David in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Now that's the passage we're going to focus on. But let's think about some of these men in David's army. We read about the bowmen and the slingers in verses 1 and 2. These are the ones who came to David at Ziklag while he was still restricted because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were equipped with bows, using both the right hand and the left to sling stones and to shoot arrows from the bow. They were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. Then we read some of their names. And so these are men, they can shoot their bow and arrow. They can shoot it right-handed or left-handed, apparently. They can sling slings like David did, either right-handed or left-handed. Very talented men in that regard. Look at verse 8. From the Gadites there came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness mighty men of valor, men trained for war, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, and they were swift as gazelles on the mountains. Again, outstanding soldiers. They could handle shield and spear, and faces like lions. I suppose they were just they're, they're fierce-looking men. And they could run, we'd say, like nobody's business. You know, swift as the gazelles on the mountain. So they were agile and strong and good soldiers. Lots of ability in that way. Look at verses 14 and 15. These are, uh, these are the sons of Gad were captains of the army. He who was least was equal to a hundred. And the greatest to a thousand. These are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks. And they put to flight all those in the valleys, both to the east and to the west. Great soldiers. And so the one who is least among the Gadites, he could take on a hundred. The strongest one could take on a thousand. And when the Jordan was flooded, when the water was deep and it was treacherous and dangerous, they crossed right through and then put to flight the enemies on the other side. And then look at verses uh, a little bit further. Oh, we just look at verses 16. Look at verses 16 through 18. The son of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold of David. And David went out to meet them and said to them, If you come peacefully to me to help me, my heart shall be united with you. But if to betray me to my adversary, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look on it and decide. Then the Spirit came upon Amasai, who was the chief of the thirty, and he said, We are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse, 
peace, peace to you, and peace to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. And David received them, made them captains of the band. And so these are the, the men, the kind of people that came out to fight with David. And so David's a great king, but he's got people helping him, people like Joab and Zadok, and then these, these mighty men, these outstanding soldiers, these leaders among the army. Beginning in verse 23, verse 22 says, Day by day men came to David to help him until there was a great army like the army of God. So David is out fighting and men, men are just pouring into his ranks. They all want to fight with David and so his army grows and grows. And then beginning in verse 23, we find the list of the divisions among the army from each tribe who came to David to help them. Many of these are described in vivid ways as well. Look at the people from the tribe of Judah in verse 24. They bore the shield and spear. The men from Simeon in verse 25 were mighty men of valor. The men of Zebulun in verse 33 helped David with an undivided heart. But I want to think especially about the men from Issachar in verse 32. Listen to what the record says about these men in the army of David. Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Their chiefs were 200, their kinsmen were all at their command. Men who understood the times. Now, when I was reading through that recently, I thought that, now that caught my attention. These are soldiers, these are men who understood the times so that they knew what to do in the army as they fought as they fought the enemy. Let's think about that a little bit. See, I, I believe we men, need men today who understand the times and who will know what to do. So what does that mean to understand the times? And in what way do we need men today like they were, men who understand the times and know what to do? Let's think about that a little bit. So what does it mean to understand the times? Now, this is my only PowerPoint slide today. So just hang in there with me as we uh, try to elaborate on it a little bit. What does it mean to understand the times? Well, it, it means they were wise men, obviously, I think. They were wise men. They had insight. They, they could perceive what was going on. But it's really just, I think it's more than that, more, more than just wisdom. They understood the influential forces at work in their lifetime. They understood the influential forces at work in their, in their lifetime. They not only observed what was happening, they understood why it was happening. And so lots of people might look out and see what's going on. Well, this is happening over here, and that's going on over there, and something else is happening over there. And I watch the news every day, and I see what's going on in the world. But, but fewer people understand why what's happening is happening. That, that would be involved in understanding the times, wouldn't it? You'd not only see what's going on, you understand why it's going on. And so they understood the deeper reasons, the deeper causes, the root causes for the events that were going on in their lifetime. Now, I don't know if that's an easy thing to do or a common thing to do. I, I think it'd probably be a rather difficult kind of challenge really to understand the times, understand why what's going on is going on. Most people see events that go on in the world superficially. 
We see what's going on. We may be upset about it or disturbed about it or pleased with it. But fewer of us really understand the deeper causes. Because they understood the times, they understood why things were happening the way they were, they would be able to accurately anticipate what's going to happen, wouldn't they? And so I understand what's going on. I can see why it's going on. And I know what's going to happen as things continue to progress. And so he says, they knew what Israel ought to do. And so they understood the times. They could see what's going on. They, they could accurately look forward to anticipate what's going to happen. And so they know what to do in light of all these circumstances. They could avoid fundamental errors that would lead to failure. They could correct those advocating and engaging in a path to failure. They could support and implement and actively participate in plans leading to success. I can just see a situation where the men of Issachar are sitting down together in a council of war, and maybe Israel's fighting the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Edomites or somebody like that. And somebody says, well, I think we need to do this. And the men of Issachar, no, 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 no. That, that, that would be a mistake. You see, you don't understand why, why things are happening the way they are. And so you're about to make a mistake <laughs> that would lead us to, to failure. No, we don't need to do that. We need to do this, and this is why. can you see that, that kind of circumstance going on? It's interesting. What an interesting description. Men who understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. I said a moment ago, I think we need men who understand the times today. For example, just going to make a couple of applications. We need fathers that understand the times don't we? You know, the Bible places the responsibility of leading the family on the fathers. Now, we're familiar with a couple of New Testament passages that we'll get to in just a moment, but, but it's always been this way. It's not simply a New Testament arrangement. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, after the first sin, after Adam and Eve both eat of the forbidden fruit, you remember it's Adam that God approaches uh, with, uh, with a question. You know, what, what, what have you done? <laughs> where, where are you? Well, why does he go to Adam? Well, he expects Adam to be the leader in the family and to have an explanation as to what's happened. That's Genesis 3, verse 9. The Lord God called to, to the man and said to him, Where are you? In Genesis chapter 18, we find that God has a very high opinion of Abraham, has confidence in Abraham, that Abraham will teach his children so that God can bring forth and continue to bring forth his plan through the descendants of Abraham. Genesis 18, verse 19, I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he's spoken about him. I've chosen Abraham so that he can teach his children in the appropriate way so that I can continue to fulfill my promise through his family. Abraham's the leader in the family. He's the father. He's the leader in the family. Also think about Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Eli was the priest. His sons were, they were just evil. And well, chapter 2 and verse 12 de describes them as worthless men. And, and so they were working in the role as priests, but very wicked men. 
They were committing sexual sin. They were corrupting the sacrifices. But God holds Eli responsible for what's going on in his family. In chapter 3 of 1 Samuel and verse 13, we find that, well, God has decided that He's going to take the lives of both of Samuel's son, Eli and Phinehas, and He's going to take them in one day. Hophni and Phinehas, I'm not sure what I said a moment ago. He's going to take the lives of both in one day. Here's verse 13. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13, I've told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves. He didn't restrain them. He didn't rebuke them. See, Eli is responsible for what's going on in his house. In fact, it's referred to through the episode as Eli's house. His house. It's his house. He's responsible for what's going on in his house. And so God has always placed the role of leadership in the family on the father. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 tells fathers not to provoke their children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so the family is just a critical in the church, in society, and so forth, to the well-being of the members of the family. But it's the father who leads the way. It's the father who is to be the head. It's the father that sets the tone of the family. It's the father that sets the direction of the family. And though many people today argue that a child can be raised just as well without a father, it is simply not true. <laughs> simply is not true. We knew for a long time, for years and years and years, that the best situation for a child to grow up in was to have a father and a mother, a strong male figure, a strong female figure, those two bound together in a loving, nurturing relationship of mutual respect, permanent in marriage, and a child grows up and he learns what a man ought to be from his father. He learns what a husband should be from his father. He learns what a father should be from his father. He learns what a woman should be, a wife and mother should be from his mother. And a girl grows up, a little girl grows up in that environment, she learns the same lessons. Now we knew that all along. We've known that for years and years and years until the last 35, 40 years or so when people decided that they were going to put their desire, just that's all it is, their desire, above the needs of the children. Now, we need strong men in the family. We need men who understand the times and know what to do. Did you know that children without a father are four times more likely to live in poverty? Children without a father have a dramatically greater risk of drug and alcohol abuse. Children without a father are twice as likely to commit suicide. Children who grow up without a father in the home demonstrate a greater tendency toward aggressive behavior, are much more likely to drop out of school, are more likely to become involved in crime, or more likely to become pregnant out of wedlock. Now again, we used to know all these things until the last few years. There are 20 million children in the United States living without a father in the home. 20 million. And of course there are a lot more than that who live with a father in the home who's emotionally unattached. 
and uninvolved. And he might not be absent physically, but he's absently, absent emotionally, which a child desperately needs. And we need fathers who understand the times we live in. They understand the influences that affect their children. We need to know the sources of those influences. We understand the world around us. We see the world. We understand it. Here's what, here are the influences that my child is subject to on a daily basis or however, however often. I know where those influences are coming from. <laughs> In other words, I know who their friends are. I know who they're hanging out with. And so I know, all, I know those things. I understand my children as well. Not only do I understand the world we live in, but I'm involved enough with my own child that I know him individually, or I know her individually. I know his likes. I know his dislikes. I know his attitude. I know what pleases him and displeases him. I know how to lead him and guide him along the way. I know how to meet his unique needs and her unique needs. See, I, I'm, I want to be a dad who understands the times. <laughs> so he knows what to do. He understands the world we live in. He understands his family. He understands his children. Our children live in the world as we all do. We all live in the world. There's not any of us who doesn't live in the world. We all live in the world. Consequently, we're going to be exposed to the thoughts and practices of the world, and there is absolutely no way to avoid it. And we can shield and protect our child as much as possible, but we can't do it completely. If your child has a television, a phone, a radio, a laptop, a tablet, with access to the internet, or a friend with any of these things. <laughs> my parent, I don't let my child have that. Well, does he hang out with somebody who does? <laughs> okay, well, he has access to it then. Well, then they're exposed to the world. And so we can monitor, we can shield our children from harmful influences to some degree, but not completely. So what, what do we want to do? Well, we've got to prepare them to live in the world and equip them to make godly choices. So that requires us to understand the world and what's going on in the world and understand our children so that I can prepare my child to make godly choices when they're confronted with those kinds of issues and decisions to make. So we need fathers who will teach their children. A few passages from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life. In peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Listen. So we need parents that will do this. Teach their children. Teach their children the way that, that the Lord's way. To walk in the Lord's way. And as it says in verse 4, you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. We need to teach our children. We need to impart them wisdom that will govern their behavior. Wisdom, of course, Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, begins with the fear of the Lord. We need parents, fathers, who will discipline their children. I fear there's a woeful lack of discipline going on in the world today. 
We need fathers or parents who will discipline. That's part of training. That's part of teaching. It's part of imparting wisdom. To know there are consequences to your choices, and you make the wrong choice, well, you'll suffer for it. Proverbs 23 and verse 14 uh, verse 13, don't, hold, don't withhold discipline from the child. Though you strike him with a rod, he won't die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol, and among other passages as well. And simply prepare our children, teach them, discipline them, prepare them, train them. We know, we know Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child, train him. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from, him, from it. And we know that there are no guarantees when it comes to raising our children. We may do our very, very best, and they in their own free will might decide to go in a different direction. But we also know that children left to themselves end in ruin. Proverbs 29 and verse 15 tells us. And so we need good fathers who will lead the home and guide the home, who understand the times both the times going on around or the times of circumstances in our own family with our children, so that we know what to do. And we can train them in the way that they need to go. One more application, and then that's going to be it for this morning. We, we, may, we need men who will serve as elders who understand the times. We need men in the church who understand the times. And so just like we need men in the family who understand the times and know what to do, we, we need men in the church who understand the times and know what to do. There's a clear pattern, as you know, in the New Testament for having elders in local congregations. It's interesting to me that you know, we, we can trace the uh, appointing of elders from very early on, Acts chapter 11, as early as that, Acts chapter 11, there are elders in the church at Jerusalem already appointed. By the time Acts chapter 11 comes around, they're already there, already established, though they were appointed earlier than that, all the, all the way to 1 Timothy and Titus. And so all through the New Testament period, we find local churches having elders. We find them in Jerusalem, in Galatia, in Philippi, in Ephesus, in Crete. And so a wide variety of places in the New Testament period, and, and over a long period of time as well. So my point is there's a clear pattern, clear pattern for the establishment or appointing of elders to oversee the work of local churches. And that's their job, to oversee the church. In Acts chapter 20, Paul calls together the Ephesian elders, and he tells them, Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so you have oversight, you're overseeing the church, and your work is to, to shepherd the church, or to pastor, that's the word, to, to pastor the church, or some versions may even say to feed the church or feed the flock. Another way of expressing that is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, where the elders are to take care of. You know, if you can't govern his own family, how can he take care of the church? Pastoring or taking care of the church means to provide for each individual member. That's the member of the church is the people. And if he's tending the church, he's tending the people. If he's caring for the church, he's caring for the people. And so his work is to care for, tend, or shepherd all the people under his oversight to 
make them lie down in green pastures, <laughs> to lead them beside still waters. That's what the Good Shepherd does, isn't it? 23rd Psalm. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, He is to watch over the souls of the church as a shepherd would keep watch over the flock. And so what would a shepherd do for his flock? He watches over them. He takes care of them. He protects them. He feeds them. He knows his sheep. His sheep know the shepherd. And so he's able to tend to them individually. He knows the strengths and weaknesses of every individual in that flock. And so he's able to, to take care of it. So we need elders. If we're going to have men who oversee the flock effectively, we need men who understand the times so that they know what to do. They understand their flock. They understand what the flock is going through. They understand the times. They understand the challenges that the flock faces. They know the strengths, the weaknesses of each one. They know their abilities. They know their potential. The Good Shepherd, as we said a moment ago, John 10, verse 16, Jesus says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. You know, I know each one of them. <laughs> I know them all. They all know me. We know each other. And so he's able to lead them effectively. A good shepherd, a good elder, knows the dangers that might threaten the sheep, or the elder might know, is to know the dangers that will threaten the church. Some of those dangers come from the outside. And so we live in a world and worldly forces are kind of bombarding us day by day. And so a good elder knows that. He understands the times. And so he's able to put into place, uh, put into place uh, whatever it is that guards against that. Programs or strategies or whatever word you want to use. But some of those challenges come from the inside, within the church itself. You know, Acts, verse, uh, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, danger from the outside, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Dangers from the inside. And so the good shepherd is always vigilant, always on guard, protecting those in his charge. And the good shepherd... The good elder knows the needs of the church, takes measures to meet those needs. That's, that's the word I was looking for a minute ago. <laughs> he puts into place measures that will guard against the dangers. A good elder, a good shepherd, because he understands the times, the world we live in, the character of the congregation, the needs of the people, you see, he knows what to do. He's able to look ahead and anticipate the problems and the challenges and provide for needs before problems arise or the church suffers. And so a person that understands the time can say, here's what we're going to need. Because this is a situation now, here's what we're going to need in the months and weeks and years ahead. And take measures, put measures into place that will provide for those needs before problems arise or before the church suffers. Good elders will train the members, like a parent trains a child, in a sense, so that when the need arises, someone is able to fill it. What's the church going to need in the coming years? It's going to need elders. It's going to need deacons. <laughs> so 
We can see that. We understand that. And so we put into place measures that will provide for those needs before they become problems. And so we don't get in a position where we say, oh no, what do we do now? You know, we want to avoid that. And so we need men who understand the times. Just like the men of Issachar understood the times, we need men today. Just we need people today who understand the times. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do as one generation replaces the previous generation and then a third generation comes along as well. Attitudes change. The attitudes of the next generation or the next, not necessarily the ones that I grew up with. Values change. Interests change. Methods change. Some understand the times when that happens, and some don't. If we don't understand the times, at least make an attempt. We eventually become irrelevant. We become slide rules in a computer age, a calcified relic of a bygone era. So understanding the times, it's just a matter of wisdom, a certain depth of wisdom, a certain kind of wisdom, paying attention to the world around us, listening, and acquiring that wisdom that God promised to those who ask Him. Remember James chapter 1 and verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's like a pretty strong promise, doesn't it? You lack wisdom. Got to understand you lack wisdom first. Ask of God who gives generously, and it will be given to him. We need men who understand the times, uh, equipped with God's wisdom, so that they'll know what to do. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the opportunity we have today to worship you. We pray that the things we've done today have been pleasing to you and have been edifying to us. Help us, Father, to grow in wisdom. We, we ask you to give us the wisdom that we need to fulfill our responsibilities in life, wherever they might be. We've thought today about in the home and in the church in particular. But we pray, Father, that you'll provide us with the wisdom that we know that we need to understand the times, understand the times in which we live, to see not only what's going on, but why these things are going on. To, to help us, Father, to have the good judgment, to anticipate what needs to be done, and, and to do it so that potential problems don't become real problems and grow worse and worse. Father, we pray for your guidance. We pray that you'll give us insight. We pray that you'll give us understanding. Pray that you'll give us wisdom that we so desperately need as we try to fulfill our roles in the family, in the church, in our lives. Help us along the way, Father. And we pray that all we do will be pleasing to you as we try to apply your will in all, our, all situations in our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here